Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. We do not, as we once did, define our interests only regionally. We are a nation with global interests and the fact that we have committed both a significant quantity of lethal and non-lethal aid, I think $90 billion uh, to Ukraine, uh, I think demonstrates Australia's identification as a responsible global actor which will always stand up for uh, the international rules-based order, sovereignty and liberal democratic values. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College with support from policyforum.net. In this episode, His Excellency the Honourable George Brandis QC, Australia's High Commissioner to the United Kingdom, joins Will Stoltz to discuss the UK-Australia relationship, AUKUS and Russia's war on Ukraine. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. Hi Commissioner, thank you for making time for a conversation. Pleasure, Will. So there's a lot of topics concerning your career and the state of the world today that I want to get to, Um, but obviously it it would be kind of remiss of us not to start with the crisis in Europe um, and the invasion of Ukraine. So I suppose, firstly, um, you know, there's been talk over the past few weeks or so of a negotiated diplomatic resolution to the invasion. I mean, uh, as a diplomat sitting here in, in the UK with a lot of insight into what's happening in Europe, I mean, how do you personally regard the chances of a, a diplomatic resolution as situation stands at the moment? Well, obviously, it's what everybody wishes for, but it's such a highly mobile um, situation that it's very difficult to be predictive. Um, the uh, the expectations of uh, Putin obviously have not been met in terms of uh, his military operation. Um, the Ukrainians obviously have shown tremendous courage and, and tenacity, and there is no sign of that abating. So we seem to be, as we speak, um, uh, at a point at which it's almost reached reached a stalemate. Um, now that is the condition in which one would expect the prospects of a diplomatic solution to be optimal. I mean, when one military force seems to be succeeding, um, or then the its incentive to resolve a dispute diplomatically are fewer. Um, If the two um, forces, the the armies and the irregulars, particularly on the Ukrainian side, the irregular combatants have uh, fought one another almost to a standstill, then that is more likely to produce the, the, the rational conclusion that the only way out of this is a settlement. But of course, and I use the word rational uh, deliberately, 
there seems to be a high degree of irrationality uh, and a high degree of um, misappraisal uh, by Putin of the the true situation, mm. um, which makes judgments about the likelihood of rational actors mm. acting in a particular way very difficult. Mm. Um, so one of the things as well that's that's struck me about uh, the Western response to the crisis, and I suppose the initial response to the invasion specifically, was that nations acted, I guess, simultaneously, but not necessarily in a kind of centrally coordinated way, you know, in the sense that we weren't waiting for President Biden to give us a big barnstorming speech before we all acted. Uh, so I suppose from your observations close up and, and thinking particularly about Australia's response to the invasion, um, you know, is there anything, I suppose, how would you characterise Australia's response and was there anything that kind of surprised you about the way Australia responded? Well, I'm very pleased with Australia's response and the answer is no, I'm not surprised at all that the Australian government um, was very, very strong um, and uh, uh, made those strong statements and adopted those strong measures very early in the peace. And Australia has won over the over recent years, I think, a very admirable reputation on the international stage as a nation that that can be relied upon to be uh, tenacious and committed in its defence of liberal democratic values. We do not, as we once did, define our interests only regionally. Um, we are a global uh, a, a nation with global interests. Uh, as the foreign policy white paper of some years ago now made clear, and the fact that we have committed both a significant quantity of lethal and non-lethal aid, I think $90 billion uh, to Ukraine, which is not of regional importance to us, mm. uh, I think demonstrates Australia's identification as a responsible global actor who, which will always stand up for uh, the international rules-based order, sovereignty, and liberal democratic values. And on the the long-term implications of this invasion, you know, it, it's obviously going to consume a great deal of attention for the UK here and and for European countries um, as they seek to resolve the conflict, but then also to kind of reconstruct and rehabilitate Ukraine itself. Mm. You know, in, in this con context, I suppose how how confident can uh, countries like Australia and Japan and others in the Indo-Pacific be that there is going to be a steady British and European commitment to the Indo-Pacific, given um, their attention will be drawn to Europe as well. Well, this is much but being much spoken of in London at the moment. I was um, addressing a breakfast of the, on the, of the Council on Geostrategy about this very topic on Tuesday, and there, in the on the one hand, there is the obvious observation that the attention of, of the United Kingdom and of Europe uh, is now focused largely on Eastern Europe and on Ukraine. But I don't think it's a zero-sum game. That doesn't mean that interests in the Indo-Pacific abate. Now, because as I pointed out um, to somebody the other day, I mean, whatever at the Foreign Office the other day, whatever may be happening in the Ukraine doesn't change what is happening in the Indo-Pacific. It doesn't change Chinese policy. It doesn't change um, 
the tension, the regional tensions. It doesn't change the uh, vectors of population growth. It doesn't change the um, creation of a large Asian middle class, an ever, ever-growing Asian middle class. Uh, it doesn't change the internal politics of ASEAN. Uh, it doesn't change tensions between India and China. So allowing for the fact that Ukraine, for obvious reasons, is front and centre of everyone's attentions at the moment, none of the considerations and judgments that informed in the United Kingdom the integrated review that was published last year have changed when it comes to the benefits and desirability of greater British involvement in the Indo-Pacific as a result of what's happening in Ukraine. Mm. So I want to shift our our conversation um, a little bit now. So, you know, you, you currently occupy one of the most senior and important diplomatic posts that an Australian can hold. And and I suppose it's one, as your remarks have demonstrated, it's one that gives you a vantage to kind of observe world affairs, not so not just the Australia-UK relationship, but but world affairs more generally. I was wondering if you can give um, our listeners a, a, a sense of how you became entangled and interested in international affairs over the course of your career. Um, you know, was it something that started for you during your your legal career or was it something that you were more drawn to in the course of your parliamentary experience? Well, it's a, it's a lifelong interest and um, like you, Will, um, uh, I am somebody someone who has always read deeply in history and other than Australian history, my great interests have been European and British history. Um, as uh, a senator and as a minister, um, I never held a foreign policy portfolio, although I did represent the foreign minister in the Senate when Julie Bishop was the foreign minister during uh, the Abbott and Turnbull governments. Um, so in that sense, I've always had uh, an uh, uh, a, from a ministerial point of view, uh, an engagement, albeit uh, an institutionally somewhat peripheral engagement uh, in the foreign affairs portfolio. As a diplomat, um, having been appointed to this job, uh, I've drawn upon a lifelong of reading and study of European history and politics and British history and politics. Um, which has been very serviceable to uh, performing this role. Mm. So, kind of on that on that line, I mean, the occupant of Stoke Lodge, I suppose, has always you know been something of the dress circle of historical events. But it strikes me that your tenure thus far has really been characterised by kind of a dizzying amount um, of change. You know, the Britain's first years out of the EU, the creation of uh, AUKUS, the the free trade agreement, um, and I suppose now the outbreak of of war in Europe. I mean, is it is it exhausting or is it exhilarating? Well, it's exhilarating, um, and I mean you're right. The, the 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 I've been lucky enough during my tenure to be the High Commissioner at what is a real inflection point in British history, and that inflection point, of course, was Brexit. Um, the and particularly with a government in the United Kingdom of the centre right, a Conservative government, this is the issue that has basically torn British politics, but most particularly conservative politics, apart in one form or another since the 1950s. This is, to the late 20th and early 21st century, 
to the Conservative Party what Ireland was in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, but even more important, frankly. So the decision in 2016 to leave the um, European Union and the implementation uh, of that decision by Boris Johnson's government culminating in Brexit in January 2021 is a real, real inflection point in British history, which will be a marker for as long as the history of these islands is written. And it has also coincided with the, the, the rise of an increasingly um, am, inter, uh, assertive um, Russian um, uh, leadership, as we've seen played out right now in, in Ukraine, but which has been foreseeable for some time, and also in other parts of the world, uh, the rise of China. As well, uh, it has coincided with a period of a lot of change in American domestic politics and America's um, engagement with the world, most notably under the rather um, unpredictable presidency of President Trump. So the we have this conjunction of world events that the non-liberal democratic states are becoming more voluble and assertive. The liberal democratic states, traditionally led by the United States, have, I think, suffered from, uh, in recent years, particularly during the Trump presidency, um, confused and mixed signals in American foreign policy. Um, and here in the United Kingdom, uh, you have seen one of the world's most important nations, um, a permanent member of the Security Council, the fifth biggest economy in the world, the, the, the most powerful military power other than Russia in Europe, decide to take an independent position as and to re reimagine itself as a global, not merely an Atlantic or European power. So the conjunction of those events was all you know, in the last four years has been, a, as I say, a real inflection point in the history of the world, but particularly in the history of Britain. We'll be right back. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. I want to talk about in a moment the um, pertinence of the AUKUS Pact to that um that changing role for Britain, but I wondered if you might also speak a little bit about the importance of the Australia Free Trade Agreement as well. Well, this has been a time of ever closer engagement as a direct result of Brexit, I might say, ever closer engagement between Australia and the United Kingdom because when the United Kingdom left the European Union, 
one of the things it needed to establish was a trade policy. I mean, Britain had not had an independent trade policy for more than 40 years because it didn't even have a Department of International Trade uh, because trade policy had been a matter for the EU. Um, So trade was both a consequence of Brexit and a very high priority. Mm. Um, uh, And when when Prime Minister Johnson, um, uh, on the Monday after Brexit occurred, uh, gave a a famous speech at Greenwich, uh, at the old Greenwich Naval um, Buildings, Uh, he talked primarily about trade uh, and global Britain. So global Britain was the slogan or that encapt- captured Johnson's vision of a vision of a post-Brexit Britain. And what his government and his ministers have sought to do is to show that it was more than a slogan, that it was a reality, that it was a strategic reality, that it was a um, a, a, a diplomatic reality that, that in terms of development goals. It was a, a, a reality, but also, importantly, in, tra- in international trade, it was a reality. Now, the first order of business was, of course, to settle the terms on which Britain would trade with the EU because the EU overwhelmingly continues to be Britain's largest trading partner. And that was largely settled, although there still is the untidiness over the Northern Ireland Protocol. But after, a second only to that, what was important to Britain was to establish new trading relationships that had, hadn't existed before or new trading agreements that hadn't existed before. And Australia was the first on the list. And uh, it was very satisfying because my, to be honest, my principal job here has been to get the free trade agreement done. Mm. Uh, in terms of the devotion of my time and effort over the last several years, that has been far and away number one. And that required not just the negotiation of terms of an agreement, most of which was done by trade negotiators, not by me, but also politically within the United Kingdom to work to change an inward culture that was unaccustomed to the idea of Britain as a global trading nation and to remind the the, both leaders and the public, that Britain traditionally has been a great global trading nation and can be again. And the Australia deal was the emblematic, it was the very emblem of that. And when I was, when I've been selling the free trade agreement and persuading people that it's a good thing, not just for Australia, but for the United Kingdom, the line I always used with hundreds of interlocutors I didn't find a single person who was able to disagree. I would say to them, if you can't do a free trade agreement with Australia, who can you do a free trade agreement with? (laughs) And whether they were enthusiastic Brexiteers who enthusiastically agreed or whether they were Remainers who were reluctant about it, whether they were enthusiasts or, or unenthusiastic, everyone accepted that the Australian free trade agreement was emblematic of, Brisbane, of Britain's capacity to be a global trading nation. 
And therefore, it took on a political significance here, way beyond what I think it had in Australia. Mm, mm. It was a good deal for Australia, but we're accustomed to free trade agreements. In Britain, it was emblematic, A, because it was the first non-European deal, but secondly, because it was the it was the deal that really they had to be able to do as a, a, because if they couldn't do a deal with us, they weren't going to have a successful trade policy. And that then raised the next question, if you can't do a deal with Australia on free trade, what was the point of Brexit? What was the agony all for? So it's been a very important um in, in British domestic politics, the Australian Free Trade Agreement had a significance and weight and symbolic importance way beyond its substantive terms. Mm. And, and and I suppose the other the other big agreement that's been occupying your time and, and will likely occupy the time of many of your successes is the, the AUKUS Pact. Which is, a, a, in, in geopolitical terms, is a game changer. Yeah. So, I mean, the Free Trade Agreement with the UK had been an objective of Australian policy for some years in one form or another since Brexit. Um, but it came to uh, fulfilment in the last year and a half. AUKUS was more recent in its conception and in its um, in its um, uh, in its accomplishment. Uh, and the thing to be to emphasize about AUKUS is that it is a real partnership between between three like-minded nations, each the leading power in its region of the world in Australia in the in the, in the southern hemisphere between the Indian Ocean and the Pacific, the, the fulcrum nation of the uh, the fulcrum liberal democracy of the Indo-Pacific. Um, the United States, obviously, as both an Atlantic and a Pacific power, and the United Kingdom uh, as one of the leading European liberal democracies. So, um, the, the 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 fact that we decided to merge our interests in this comprehensive capability development pact, which with global reach, but with an emphasis on the Indo-Pacific, I think is. Uh, uh, again, uh, 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 an inflection point in in the history of our region, at least. So, is that why you think it was important that the exchange of this technology have this AUKUS construct focused on the Indo-Pacific around it? Because it strikes me that there were there was an option to just exchange the technology under you know an updated ANZUS treaty, or even just under the Five Eyes partnership. Was it was it critical that the exchange of nuclear propulsion technology also be accompanied by this this kind of new diplomatic construct? I think it needed a structure. It needed a structure around it, which was just which was more than just a bespoke agreement. And the thing to bear in mind, um, and the at the Orkmin meeting in Sydney in January, the minister ministers were very conscious to emphasise this. AUKUS is not just about nuclear-powered submarines. The nuclear-powered su- submarine project is the first big item in AUKUS, and people understand it. It's very tangible. But there are AUKUS is much broader than that. People speak about Pillar 1 of AUKUS, which is the submarines, 
and pillar two, which is the other capabilities on which, which we are going to develop in partnership, whether it be artificial intelligence, whether it be quantum computing, whether it be um, cyber um, uh, cyber technology, uh, both defensive uh, and aggressive, uh, whether it uh, be joint projects in space in years to come. These are projects which are less advanced and more amorphous, but they're just as much a part of the AUKUS vision as the submarines. In other words, this is a broadly based, long-term, joint mutual capability development endeavour. So um, I'm, I'm mindful that uh, I'm, I'm taking up a decent period of, t- of your time, but before we finished, I'd, I'd be interested to kind of get your insights briefly about the kind of nature of your role day to day. You know, how have you handled being head of mission for for a post where the relationship is so expens- expansive as as you've kind of outlined? I mean, it must feel like a challenge to be across every single aspect of um, what's going on in in so many parts of the relationship, given how close the agencies work work together? Well, the agencies do work very close together, both at a defence level, the intelligence agencies, the policing agencies do work very close together. But, of course, the relationship between countries is ultimately a relationship at the political level. Now, at the moment in Australia, you have, and in the United Kingdom, you have two like-minded governments. You have two prime ministers, Scott Morrison and Boris Johnson, who are friends, who get on very well. Um, The degree of um, like-mindedness between us uh, is very high, and that is, um, and the degree of familiarity and ease of dealing uh, between uh, like-minded and mutually uh, trusting uh, partners um, is, is unusually high. There was an opinion poll conducted in the United Kingdom in the last week of February, which showed that among the British public, the country of which they had the most favourable impression of of all the countries in the world was Australia. The Lowy Institute, in its public attitude survey last year, when it posed the question, which country do you most trust um, to act responsibly in the world? The Australian public put Britain at the top. So this is a time in which these two countries have a higher level of confidence in one another than either of them have in any other country. So it's it's a really purple patch in the relationship. The the common values, uh, the, the shared interests will always underlie that, but on top of, uh, and they will always be the most important thing, I think, but on top of shared values and common interests, there is this efflorescence of goodwill and trust and like-mindedness and kinship between the two countries, which I think is uh, greater today than it's ever been in peacetime. Mm. So, you know, you mentioned there that you didn't come to the role of High Commissioner from a kind of traditional diplomatic career. Um, do you think there's room in the modern diplomatic service to see more people from wider backgrounds to take up appointments like high commissionerships or others, you know, potentially including even people from from business or think tanks? Definitely. Definitely. I mean, the, w- without any um, uh, disrespect to people who pursue careers within the Department of Foreign Affairs as professional diplomats who will always be um, the overwhelming majority of Australia's heads of mission. There are some places 
where there is a distinct advantage in being having a, a broader life experience than being a public servant enables you to have. Um, whether uh, it be um, in places like London and Washington where a senior member of the cabinet uh, is almost by convention uh, regarded as the uh, having a, a skill set that brings additional weight and gravitas to the role, um, whether it be uh, in places like, for example, Barry O'Farrell in India, who draws upon not only his experience as a state premier, but as a person who uh, for many years has been integral to building at a commercial level the Australia-India uh, commercial relationship. Um, it's a horses for courses thing, and there are certain uh, posts in which having, as I say, both the, the weight of seniority and the breadth of experience that is not available uh, within the narrow channels of a public service department uh, adds immense value. Mm. So, High Commissioner, I, I want to thank you for being so generous uh, with your time and to speak to our audience. I know these are obviously very busy times for, for you and the teams here at Australia House. So, you know, thank you very much for your time and, and thank you for your hard work. Thank you very much, Will. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.